everyone, and welcome once again to my podcast I call Paint Stories. I'm Mark Golden, co-founder of Golden Artist Colors, with my father and mother Sam and Adele Golden and my wife Barbara. And as promised today, I'm finally joined by my older brother, Tom Golden. Thanks, Tom, for uh, joining us. Thanks, Mark, for having me. There's uh, quite a few people that were really excited about you joining me. You have quite a fan base. Tom is our vice president of the Sam and Adele Golden Foundation for the Arts and a practicing doctor of clinical psychology for close to 50 years. During various gatherings, both Tom and I have shared stories about the history of Golden Artist Colors and the earlier history of Bocour Artist Colors and our dad, Sam Golden, and our great uncle, Leonard Bocour. During the first two podcasts, I had the opportunity to share some of those very early origin stories of Bocour and the place that these two companies have played within the community of painters since 1932. So literally today is our 40th anniversary since starting Golden Artist Colors. Actually couldn't be a better time, especially since Tom is also homebound. I'm so grateful to have my brother help me share these stories in a way that only he can. As much as I've been told some of the stories of the early days by my dad, Tom was actually around uh, during some of those early days with dad and our great uncle Lenny. Tom, could we start with what was your earliest memories of dad and uncle Leonard? Yeah, absolutely. I just wanted to make it clear. I'm not homebound due to Alzheimer's or some dementia. I'm homebound due to obliging the rules of COVID-19. Yeah, my earliest memories of dad and uncle Leonard. Clearly my earliest memories of dad is as being big and very strong. Uh, sort of, that's it. And working. Every day he worked and came home from work. And Uncle Leonard, obviously, my memories of Leonard would be primarily prompted by my dad's involvement with his uncle in Bocour Artist Colors. And any early on memories I have of Uncle Leonard, or label was the name that we all had for Uncle Leonard, had to do with the paint company. And uh, also his closeness and relationship with my dad and my mom. I know the early stories of Bocour begin with a partnership uh, with his childhood friend, Erwin Lefcourt. Did you get to meet Erwin and his wife, Sarah? I met them actually several times. My, my, the very first time I met them, when I was, a, I was an unemployed singer, performer in my early, early 20s, was looking for work as a performer in the city. And on a particular day, I knew about the Art Fair Gallery. I think it was around 14th Street off of 2nd Avenue in Manhattan. The Art Fair Gallery was owned by Erwin Lefcourt. I had known about it, and I went down there on that particular day. And on that day, I know I spoke to both Erwin and his wife, uh, Sarah, just about what I was doing in the theater, and they were quite interested in it and, and very supportive. Didn't have any work for me singing at the store. <laughs> but they said... Uh, this was in the 60s. The city of New York is really desperate for school teachers. Did you give thought to doing that at least for an income? I said, no, I never gave thought to it. I never took a teaching course. I never thought of teaching children. She said, well, go for it. I think you can get yourself some works, you know, while you're still pursuing your career. I did, and I started teaching part-time. And the Art Fair Gallery was a gallery that throughout the years of the Art Fair, it was a place where young, skillful artists would look to have their work shown for the very first time. And it really was a wellspring for many painters who eventually 
achieved notoriety in the, uh, in the city of uh, New York and around the nation. Leonard described himself as an artist, but I don't remember that I ever saw any paintings by Uncle Leonard. Did, have you ever seen? No, I'd never seen any paintings uh, by Leonard, and nor had I ever heard him describe himself as an artist. I just knew that he was an artist because he was involved in the world of art. <laughs> And he was very knowledgeable, you know, as in sort of an art historian, certainly about the New York paint scene. But I never knew him. I don't think any of the family knew him as a, a painter any more than, than my dad was a painter. I know you were born after dad joined Leonard because he was just 22 years old. Do you know why dad left the dairy store the folks had to join Leonard in uh, 1936? Yeah. Well, I was born in 38. And by the way, in a couple of weeks is my uh, 82nd birthday. You're expecting a gift. Right. <laughs> anyway, I was born in 38. And early on in their marriage, the folks bought this shop or rented a shop on Blake Avenue in East New York, Brooklyn. And it was a dairy store. A dairy store meaning they sold butter by the barrel. They sold pot cheese and farmer cheese. And they also sold locks, I guess, and herrings and things of that sort. My mom and dad worked in it. Uh, I don't know. Either of their background was that they would know anything about Pachi's any more than you and I, but uh, they started the store on Blake Avenue and some short time after that, I don't know how long it was, that store burned to the ground. So it wasn't that he left the dairy store, there was no dairy store to leave. They had no insurance either. So this for this young couple, this particular tragic event in the business world was not only painful and distressing and causing grief, but it probably also did something to their spine in the sense of this happened, it didn't go right, we're sorry that it happened, and they went beyond that and continued their life and didn't become just a depressed, sorrowful couple. Well, actually, they were joyful when I came along. I'm sure that was helpful. <laughs> yeah, reason to be joyful. Do you, do you remember when you first visited or worked at the Bocor shop? And I'm sure it was during high school years because I know... We moved from East New York, Brooklyn, the summer of uh, my 13th birthday. I just had had a bar mitzvah in the city at Rappaport's Dairy Restaurant. Well, we left that summer. We moved to Hillsdale, New Jersey. And prior to that, I don't think I ever did anything in Bocour Factory. But subsequently, in summertime and on holidays, I frequently went into and worked at the Bocour shop. So that would have been during my high school years. And then clearly during summertime, during my college years, uh, if I wasn't doing something else, I did some other part-time work. After my 13th year, I, I spent time at the Bocor plant. So like 51, 52? Yeah, it was about 51, 52. Before I went off to Cornell in 55, I perhaps did summertime there too during my Cornell years, you know, mm -hmm. as a college student. Do you remember how many people were working at Bocor at the time? At my very first involvement with the factory, I think there may be were six or seven persons, I'm thinking of two or three of the men who actually made the paint, several women who worked doing the labeling and boxing and doing the supply side of the uh, finished products. I thought one of the uh, Bogdanov. Uh, Bobby Bogdanov. He was a nephew of Lenny Bokor and has, as a youth, literally a youth, 17, 18, 19 years of age, was obviously an extremely skillful trombone player and as a consequence, I don't know how it happened, he got to work with Tommy Dorsey, Harry James, major American bands as a trombone player. 
At some point in time, he got into difficulty. He no longer was playing the trombone. And at some point, he came to work as the director of ship for Bocor Artist Colors. A lovely, lovely guy. Great anecdotes about his musical history. I knew his folks, who were uncles and aunts of his. I knew them through my grandmother, Becky. Did you get to work any of the equipment at the shop? Yeah, oh, I, I worked uh, whatever equipment I was allowed uh, to work. Initially, I w- would be just a gopher, go pick up this, go do that, go go get a corned beef sandwich, go whatever. But early on, even in the high school years, I would be allowed to put X gallons of uh, linseed oil in a stainless steel tank or a tub and some other kind of ingredients, some baking soda and, <laughs> you know, whatever. Put it in the mixing machines and have it mixed. And it wasn't until I was a little bit older, probably in my high school years or maybe early college years, that I was allowed to actually stand behind the mills, pour paint into the grinding mills while they were spinning away. Once the well was filled with paint and the mills were turning, go to the front end of the grinding mills. And along this trough would come this magnificent folds of cadmium red and orange and black. and, And you'd be able to move that paint into five-gallon bucket. Once in a while, the mills would have to be tightened or loosened depending upon the grind of the particular pigment. I, I never did that because I people who knew, Sidney, Bird Eye, my dad, obviously. And in hindsight, I never saw Leonard operate any piece of equipment whenever I was there. Now, he may have, when I wasn't there, maybe at night he went in and tried to make stuff on his own. Leonard would primarily be in the office and come down to the factory floor. Once in a while, saying hello, uh, but when he would come to the factory floor, clearly the demeanor of everyone would be spit shine and attentive to their work. Everyone respected Leonard Bocour, everyone, including myself, obviously. Did you have to fill paint by by hand? Yeah, and early on, this was in the shop on 42nd Street, right down from the Lincoln Tunnel, from the McGraw Hill building. You would fill the lead tubes by hand, there would be a pile of paint in front of you that had been hand-mixed by dad, typically. You had a, a pile of ultramarine blue and with a long spatula knife. You'd work the paint so that there was just a thin, long line along one edge of the spatula. And then you would put that line against the open end of the tube, and you would then move the knife across the lip of the open end of the tube. Then you'd tap the tube moving paint again you'd pretty well full a two ounce tube and also at that table a stamping machine that you would put the open end of the tube in the stamping machine and stamp it and then you would make a fold and then stamp it again on that fold and then stamp it again on the fold and then at some point when the tube was finished there'd be another implant a metal implant that would have a date on it and a lot number something to that effect that you'd put in the machine and the final stamp would identify the tube with a particular number or lot number. Frankly, I don't know what it's. It may have said made in China for all I know. I know I had to put it in place. That was what the final look of the uh, folded tube. But every one of those was done by hand. That was when Dad was still making the paint by hand. Yeah, all of it was made by hand. Before uh, the mill? It was Yeah, I think it was hand ground too, as a matter of fact. I don't remember there being mills. I, I actually don't recall that. Maybe there was a mill. Right. So this uh, was on this was on forty forty second Street. That's when I, I went in with that on a pretty regular basis. There's actually very little information about them being on Forty Second Street. I think this is the first time I've heard about that shop on Forty Second Street. I don't know how yeah. long they were there. I don't. I don't remember either. Other than that, 
typically went to that shop by subway and take a train into the subway and get off at 42nd Street and walk from 8th Avenue, 42nd Street, past the McGraw Hill building. Could you confirm the the story? Uh, This is a big legend about Leonard and Dad buying a coconut crusher. And I couldn't understand through any of the, the work and even speaking to Dad whether they actually fixed the coconut crusher to work as a roller mill. Or did they buy a real paint mill? Do you know? No, I, I had, when you had mentioned to me about the coconut crusher, well, just an interesting aspect of that comment, Mark, is that dad, despite a lack of an engineering degree or a carpenter degree or an electrician's degree, he was truly skillful, skillful on his own in that he could figure out things and he was curious so I wouldn't be surprised if they did have a coconut crushing machine, uh, which they got for pennies on the dollar or for nothing, and he attempted to make that into a mill to grind pigment. Did uh, Dad or, or Uncle Leonard ever ask you if you were interested in, in joining Bocor? No, they never asked me if I was interested in joining Bocor. They would ask me to join them for lunch. <laughs> uh, but that that was about it. And I never voluntarily or my own even suggested to dad that, you know, someday I'd like to be part of the company. And that may, have, that may be due to the fact on one occasion when I was quite young, not long, I was sort of in high school, I was doing tubing and Uncle Leonard came by and I was putting labels on the tube. And on this one particular tube, you put the label through a little wet machine so the glue got wet and then you wrap the label around the tube at a certain location in a certain way so it looked very neat and Leonard saw me wrapping one and he said spontaneously much to my pain Tom this isn't a push cart and he said it in that demeaning kind of way and I knew push carts were a schlocky way to sell oranges and apples on Blake Avenue so I knew if someone said you're doing something like a push cart peddler you were doing something less than professionally he then showed me what I did wrong on this tube and he probably was right but I had done many tubes before then. Unfortunately, he didn't look in the box and see how many I'd screwed up on. But I know I was so upset. And perhaps the lack of an offer to participate in the company is rooted in my labeling mishap. I, I doubt it, though. But anyway. <laughs> I want to talk about Dad when he began working in the shop. Obviously, he wasn't trained as a chemist, but he was certainly a, an inventor, a tinkerer, and willing to do so much of what he did by trial and error which is actually the case in so much of paint technology. Do you remember any of his experiments? Yeah, well, I remember vividly when he came home on one evening. We were still living in Brooklyn in East New York, and our cars were parked, uh, tail height to bumper on the street. forgot what car it was. Not the Empire, not the biggie one, but our first Studebaker, which was a unique car to have in that neighborhood. No one had a car that looked like the Studebaker. It was like a car out of Buck Rogers, out of, <laughs> out of you know, the science fiction where people were buying Chevys and Dodges. Mom and dad bought a Studebaker with a bullet front. Anyway, he had this jar of product, and I guess it was Magna. He wanted to protect the bumpers on the car, so he coated the bumpers on the Studebaker with Magna. I didn't think anything of it other than uh, that it was interesting and it it reflected for me in hindsight not at the time the curiosity the spontaneity and the sort of if not inventiveness the desire to do something different which was not reflected in my dad being a talker or explaining things fully about what he was doing he just was a doer in any number of ways he clearly was someone who had to do and try, and then try again, 
and didn't seem to be particularly dismayed if the last try didn't go well. He just was comfortable in his skin with uh, doing the next. When we had our home, we left Brooklyn to Hillsdale, New Jersey. At one time in repainting the house, my dad used our Aquatec cobalt blue on the trim of the house and the garage. Well, this was a stunning color for the neighborhood. It obviously was a standout to have cobalt blue as a magnificent blue on the trim of the house. And he did it with absolutely no hesitancy. <laughs> Adele, my mom, not that I'm aware of, never seemed to query what dad was going to do next with whatever he decided to do. I don't remember them having a major conversation, let alone an argument about cobalt blue on the house or magna <laughs> on the bumpers of the car or even getting the car. They seemed to be simpatico in terms of that aspect of Sam's desires. Uh, nor do I remember him interfering very much with her totally running the household and every part of our lives. Okay. Leonard, in, in so much of the recorded history, talks about the Bellini king-size tube that really made Bocor a success. Certainly, it was an important uh, new product because artists at that time, after the war, were really painting in huge scale. But it wasn't the Bellini king-size tubes that really made the success, financial success for Bocor. It was really that paint by numbers. I remember that vividly from the very onset of the paint by numbers uh, history because I was old enough to be party to it, spoke about it. In New York City on 14th Street, there would be a toy fair where people from all over the world, certainly the United States, would present their latest toy invention and have it be seen by vendors. These two fellows, uh, Al Siegel, I remember one name, but two guys had a small operation and they had made a particular item that they introduced. And according to Al, they had went down to Miami, Florida, to go on a fishing trip. And when they came back to their plant in Long Island City, the offices, whatever they had there, they had canvas bags, these large postal bags that have heavy-duty rope and locks on the top of them. But they're <laughs> bags that are like could take a whole body, or at least a, a small body, full of orders for this item that they introduced at this toy fair. And that item was a paint-by-number paint set. And the paint-by-number paint set became like the hula hoop, the major successful, unique uh, hobby toy item in the United States of America. And as a consequence, they had a need for paint to be made for these paint-by-number sets. Clearly, they made contact with Bocor and directly with my dad. And he was then put in charge to produce thousands of gallons of paint for the paint-by-number sets. So much paint for the paint-by-number sets that Bocour, a five-day-a-week, 40-hour workspace to a seven-day-a-week, 24-7, crews in the evening making paint for the paint-by-number sets. Well, the making paint was actually the easy part. It was a cheap paint. The colors were not very expensive. They set up formulas. What was critical, and this involved, once again, Sammy Golden's sort of curiosity or experimental mindset. The paint had to be put in tiny little cups. I don't know, Mark, was it like a quarter ounce? I don't know how much yep, paint I was think in so. Yeah, Maybe a quarter ounce in a plastic cup, which got covered with a plastic cover and put into a set, which maybe had 12, 15 colors into a box. They had not any particular technique to do it at this point. But my dad took on the responsibility to find a way to generate the individual cups filled with paint for the paint-by-number set. He contacted a Mr. Hensler, who was an older machinist. They invented the machinery to both fill the cups 
then put the cups with a cover on it into another machine, bang, and a blade would come down and cut 144, however many cups it was, which dropped into a big bucket. And that was the successful packaging of these tiny little cups. There was no small potatoes. It's what allowed the paint to be put into kits. I know they were selling the paint-by-number paints to a lot of different manufacturers of the paint-by-numbers. So that aspect of the benefits for Bocour were, were major. It, one, it allowed us to move from Brooklyn to New Jersey for paying for school. I mean, it was a major, major financial boost for Bocour artist colors. Uh, absolutely. Bocor was late to making water-based acrylic paint. This was first introduced by Liquitex in 1954. And Dad didn't make waterborne acrylic, the Aquatec, until 1960. He shared that this was a pretty disastrous time as the original formula was built on an acrylic product from a manufacturer that didn't use the same source of water as the original successful samples. And all of the product they produced shipped out and hardened within months. They purchased back all the product from customers in 1960. So it wasn't until they started working with Roman Haas chemist Al Lamy that they were able to finally make a workable product. It was just before this that Leonard married Ruth Hirsch in 1960. And Ruth had some knowledge of chemistry as, a, I guess, a pre-med student. And Leonard asked her to assist dad. Ruth was in the shop assisting with drawdowns and sharing new ideas. I was still doing some work at Bocour when Ruth joined. I remember her in a white smock, you know, a, a sort of a surgeon's smock as opposed to, you know, wearing street clothes that you got paint on. She had two sons, Chuck and Paul. I'm sure that he was disquieted about it, and he, I'm absolutely positive that he probably reflected that to mom uh, at home. Brooklyn. Well, I think that was part of dad's pronouncement. I might be ignorant. I might not be a chemist, but leave me alone and let me get this done. I know the relationship with Leonard and Dad broke off in 1971, but before that, my brother Steve began working at Bocor. It was Steve who helped negotiate and plan the move of the Bocor shop to Garneville after the city took over the rights on 52nd Street building to build a boys' club. Did you ever get to Garnersville? No, I never saw Garnersville. I wasn't ever at the factory when Stephen was there, but I knew he was party to company for a block of time, and then eventually. It went elsewhere. Yeah, you know, Steve was responsible for a bunch of new contracts that they were able to negotiate. He was certainly instrumental in one, being able to grow the company, but also help with the move that was pretty significant, moving out of New York to Garnersville. The shop was about twice as big. I, I do think that it was probably that moving, uh, leaving Manhattan, as artists would very rarely visit the the new shop over the bridge, I think really led to incredible disappointment. and. Uh, also to the break in the relationship with dad. That's when dad left and sold his share of the company back to Leonard and headed up to his farm in upstate New York. The Garnersville move, Garnersville in Rockland County, okay, has zero to do the New York City flavor, the flow, the dynamics of being in midtown Manhattan for since the early 30s, at least for Leonard. And then for dad, that change had to be traumatic, although from a business point of view, I guess they thought it was appropriate, but it had to have its historical consequences and emotional consequences for everyone involved. Nothing would be the same. Now they happen to be a company making paint in a warehouse in Garnersville. Mm -hmm. 
So it was just 10 years later, Leonard sold the company to Zipitone, which moved the production to an outside firm in 1982. And he stayed a consultant while he still lived in, in New York for the next five years. And Leonard uh, passed away in 1993. Leonard's death was a, was a tragedy for, for all of us. It had to do with the profound presence of Leonard Bogdanov, Leonard Bokor, in the lives of all of us the children, the relatives, the nieces, the nephews, uh, my grandparents. He was a special man. And throughout my life, I only had the fondest feelings for Leonard. And even when my dad and he left and the leaving was not comfortable or a happy time, or my feelings about Leonard really uh, never, never changed. He was a, a special influence on all of us. In my sophomore year at uh, Cornell, he gave me a Plymouth convertible for free, for nothing. <laughs> he just told Dad one day, they were still partners, and he said, have Tom come into the city. And I came into the city on 87th Street and West End, Riverside Drive, where he lives. He came down from the building. He gave me the keys to this beautiful baby blue Plymouth convertible. He said, here, Tom, this car is for you. I would have never had a car. I remember driving it up to Ithaca to Cornell, this convertible. Everyone would say, where the hell, how did you get this car? To have gotten an automobile from Leonard that came out of some level of affection that he felt for me. But they spent a great deal of time with each other. He visited frequently in Brooklyn, and it would be a great, great day. It was a sort of a festival day when Uncle Label would come to have dinner with Sam and Adele and myself and whatever sibling had been born at that point in our little apartment. This major domo Uncle Label was coming for dinner was seen as a holiday festival. Everyone loved him, and he was warm and interested and just great to be with. And he was the most famous person in the Golden Clan. My mother's family, we had Uncle Sidney, who was a doctor, who was the bestest doctor on the whole East Coast. But that was on my mother's side. On the Golden side, Lenny Bocour was the most famous person we all knew. He lived in Manhattan. He was married to a, a movie star. He went all over the world. It was a treat. The rest of us were just sort of schleppers who lived on Essex Street. You know, what can I tell you? you know, we never got the chance to be as famous as a Leonard. Including the move to Garnetville, the, the falling out, the relationship with Leonard changing, the presence of Ruth, the Stephen firing, uh, any number of factors got in the way of what was the joyous relationship of Sam and Leonard for so many years. A very protected, not just familial like bloodline, a protected uncle and nephew. And that's how we felt about Leonard too. And adored by my mom, by us, and dad loved him. And I know that to the day of dad's death, he had a real profound affection for his uncle Leonard. <laughs> 